Thank you again for the opportunity to move a little bit. That's better. For the opportunity to preach here this morning. Have you ever noticed how our Lord, when he when he speaks, he will use comparisons. You ever notice that? For instance, he'll say, you know, there was a man who built his house upon a rock and one built upon sand. Or he'll say, a, man, a certain man had two sons. Or two men went up to the temple to pray. Comparisons make things easier to understand. We're going to look today comparing a group and an individual very, very different. And it's the comparison that makes it better and easier to understand. We'll be looking initially at Mark chapter 12. So Mark chapter 12, looking at verse 41. But before we do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you might open our hearts and minds to the truth you have here. Have us to see, Lord. Have us to understand the truth that you wish us to understand this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 41. Now the timing here is that Jesus is leaving the temple. He has cleansed the temple. He has taught in the temple. He has debated in the temple. He has rebuked, he has exhorted, and now it's time to leave. They haven't listened, they haven't regarded, and he is now leaving the temple. Remember also, as I've said before, the temple refers to several different things. When you say the temple, there was the temple proper, you know, with the three courts and the Holy of Holies and the altar of sacrifice in there. But the temple also referred to the entire Temple Mount area. Okay, that was also considered the temple. So in this area, seeing it was coming up to Passover, there were thousands and thousands of people packed in. They were there to sacrifice. They were there to worship. They were there to learn. Because during Passover week, they held... Bible college, classes. The rabbis would sit and teach. It was a time for the ordinary people to come and hear and to learn. So this is what has been happening. And as he's leaving, verse 41, And Jesus sat over against the treasury, and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury, and many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. And he called unto him his disciples, and saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast in more than all they which have cast into the treasury. For they all did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. It's a, it's a scene that we don't have a corresponding thing too close in our services. We're, we're looking here at a great big 
box. Alright? Imagine a big box, locked lid, and a thing like a trumpet or a funnel sticking out the top. And this is how, that was how it was done. We'll find out where this comes from. Have a look over in 2 Chronicles. We'll find the origin of this, this of what was happening. 2 Chronicles chapter 24. 2 Chronicles chapter 24, starting at verse 4. Second Chronicles 24.4 And it came to pass after this that Joash was minded to repair the house of the Lord. And he gathered together the priests and the Levites and said unto them, Go out into the cities of Judah and gather together all Israel, gather of all Israel money to repair the house of your God from year to year and see that ye hasten in the matter. Howbeit the Levites hasten not to do it. And the king called for Jehoiada the chief and said unto him, why hast thou not required of the Levites to bring in out of Judah and out of Jerusalem the collection according to the commandment of Moses, the servant of the Lord, and of the congregation of Israel for the tabernacle of witness? For the sons of Athaliah, that wicked woman, had broken up the house of God and also all the dedicated things of the Lord they did bestow upon Balaam. Now here is... Think about this. And at the king's commandment, they made a chest and set it without at the gate of the house of the Lord. And they made a proclamation throughout Judah and all Jerusalem to bring in to the Lord the collection that Moses, the servant of God, laid upon Israel in the wilderness. And all the princes and all the people rejoiced and brought in and cast into the chest until they'd made it end. And so on. It, it describes how they gathered the money together and they counted it and they put it in bags and they repaired the temple, repaired the tabernacle at that stage. Uh, sorry, temple at that stage. So they fixed things up. And the tradition continued. They would have a big chest with locks on it and a thing like a funnel sticking up the front, up the top, and you would come and just throw your money in. That was how they made a collection. And this was for the pardon me, for the maintenance and the repair of the temple. Okay? This was called the treasury. And there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. Remember we talked a little while ago about a denarius? Okay. A denarius was a day's wages. For a skilled labourer, in today's terms, possibly, well, over $100, okay, a denarius. What she threw in was properly, it's not actually called a mite, it's called a lepton. A mite, just to indicate its tiny size. It was one 128th of a denarius. Okay, one one hundred and twenty eighth of a denarius, or a day's wages. Um, now you think, well, it's an eight-hour day, and you know you weren't so much an hour, and uh, by ten and carry the one, and you know, look, it's about one or two dollars. Okay, it's a couple of dollars. That's it. 
Not much. About one person worked out it's about what you'd earn in six minutes. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's not a lot of money, is it? It's a couple of dollars. It's all she had. All she had. And she cast it in. But other people were casting in large amounts of money. So why did she need to put in any? And it raises the question. And it really starts to, you know, we need to consider this and think about it. Why do we need to give to God? Why do we need to give to God? And I'm going to let you in on something. And, you know, I've, I've, I've seen preachers, pastors of churches get you know, really twitchy when I say this. And some of them will just about have a nervous breakdown. And, but listen to me and understand this. I can tell you why we don't give to God. We don't give to God because he needs it. God doesn't need your money. There, think about it. God doesn't need your money. He who owns the cattle on a thousand hills does not need your cash. He who owns the rivers and the rocks and rills doesn't need you to pay his water bill. He who owns the sun and the stars that shine doesn't need you to pay his light bill. So why do we do it? Why do we do it? Well, you could say, well, we do it because we're told to. That's a good enough reason. God tells you to do something, you do it. But why? Why do we need to do it? I want you to really consider this. Why do we do it? It's not for God's benefit. It's for our benefit. It's for our benefit. I want you to just consider something. Just think about it. Don't, don't you love it when, you know, people are sitting around or saying, and you have testimony time about how people got saved? Isn't that great? The stories of, of how God worked in their lives and people got saved. It's terrific. Great time. Do that at camp. It's really good. You know, I really enjoy it. Can you imagine doing that in heaven? How long that is going to be running? You know, just, just to go from the start to the finish before anybody repeats themselves? How many people uh, there would be to give such stories of how they were saved? Wouldn't it be amazing to listen to some of those? Now we're told that the angels desire to understand and listen in on the story of grace because angels have trouble getting a grasp of grace. So they desire to understand these things. And I just want to picture something for a moment. Here we are, we're in heaven and we're sitting there with the company of angels and somebody is giving a testimony of how they got saved. And he comes up and he says, One day 
a missionary came into our village. He was a white man and we'd never seen him a white man before. And he sat down and he talked to us and he told us about how God loved us and we didn't need to fear the rain gods and the sun gods and the gods of thunder. But there was a God who loved us and whose son died for us. And I realised that the idols I'd worshipped and the worship of the ancestors were nothing and foolishness and stupid. And I turned in faith to this new God and I was saved. Can you imagine being able to elbow an angel in the, in the ribs and go, I helped support that missionary. He was one of mine. He was one of the ones that I gave money to to get him into the the field, so that he could reach that soul. And the angel going, you mean you were part of that? I said, yeah, I was part of that. I was involved in getting that person into heaven. Let me tell you, that's why we give. It's not for God's benefit, it's for us. It is a privilege that God gives us to be part of His work. A privilege. That He says, look, I could do it without your help, but I tell you what, I'll let you be a part of what I'm doing. And this is how you can do it. A privilege to be part and parcel of God's work is given to us by giving to Him, to His work. And that's why we do it. We do it so that we can be part of God's work. Now, anything worth doing is worth doing properly. And so we're told, look, if you're going to give, get organised with it. Don't, don't just, you know, do it on the spur of the moment. Be organised, be systematic. You know, get figure out I'm going to give this much and, I'm going to, and, and God gives a guideline for it. He says give systematically. Give proportionally. Organise yourself and do it properly. And you say, well, how much should I give? It's real simple. Ask God. He'll tell you. You'll soon know. If you go to God in prayer and say, God, God how much do you want me to give? You know, a pro this proportion, that proportion, that flat amount, he'll let you know. He will. And when you do, there's a blessing that comes not in the physical, but in the spiritual, knowing you're doing what God wants. And that is why and how you give. There is this idea around in, in some churches, that you give with the purpose of having God give back to you. Now, one of the people who, there are, there are certain groups, and I'll be ge as generous as I can and say that certain of our charismatic brethren have taken this to an extreme. It's very interesting, I... Uh, few months ago I got hold of Jimmy Baker's biography, autobiography that he wrote after coming out of jail. It's interesting because it's entitled I Was Wrong. Um, 
Jimmy Baker now says that the prosperity gospel is at best an aberration and at worst a false gospel. My respect for the man has gone up quite a bit after hearing that. He now realises that that was just rubbish. It was false and misleading people. We give because we can and it's a privilege to be part of it. She cast in all that she had. She wanted to give so much that she gave everything there was that she had. It's been said truly, in fact, God does not count how much you give, but how much you have left. And she had none. Yet at the same time, there are people here in this, in, in this situation that after our Lord commends this woman, he begins to condemn them. And I want to draw a parallel between those he commends and those he condemns. To put these two groups of these two people in contrast. Turn over to Matthew 23. Matthew 23. Matthew 23. Jesus begins to condemn the scribes and Pharisees. And we'll see that there is actually a connection between these two, verse, these two passages, which you may not have seen before, but there is a connection. He begins to condemn them, and we'll, we'll pick it up at verse 13, although there's more there. There are, between verse 13 and the end of the chapter, Seven times that our Lord says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now it's said by neurologists that seven is God's number because it's the number of perfection. Perhaps that because these were perfect hypocrites. I don't know, but there is seven times it is said. At verse 13 he begins and he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, neither go in yourselves, neither suffer them that are, that are to enter in. He said the first woe among, for the scribes and the Pharisees is that they make it hard for people to get saved. I was told that every error that the church faces now is described somewhere in the New Testament. And of all the groups and denominations that are still around, I think the denomination of the Pharisee is still pretty evident in Christendom today. For they are the people who by their hypocrisy make it difficult for other people to get saved. They're not saved themselves and by their attitude they put people off coming to church. 
Now, you've, you've all heard that saying, you know, oh, I don't want to come to church, there's too many hypocrites there. Well, if someone says that, tell them, don't worry, there's always room for one more. And, but it is a problem that people look at the church and go, that's not right. These people are saying one thing and doing another, it's not right. Their words don't match their actions. And he says, you shut up the kingdom of heaven against people by your hypocrisy. By contrast, <coughs> the poor widow woman gave to God's program for the express purpose of hoping and helping that God's word would reach out to other people. She gave for other people to hear the word of God. And yet these people, they prevent people, they hinder people from being saved. In verse 14 he says, Woe unto you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses. Oh, hang on a minute. You ever wondered why the poor widow woman only had two mites left? You devour widows' houses. The very people who they should have been protecting and taking care of, they were exploiting. They devour widows' houses. We're told that true religion, true religion in the world is to look after the widow and the fatherless and to keep yourself unspotted from the world. These people had done the opposite. They exploited the widow and the fatherless and immersed themselves in the world. A few years ago, there was an inquiry into rents in Sydney. And they inquired especially into what's called a slumlord. Now, a slumlord is somebody, they don't provide cheap housing. What they do is they get, say, a big building in the inner city and they chop it up into lots of little rooms and they charge people extortionate rent because they might charge them rent but not charge a bond so that people are, are in and out there a lot and, and the rent is high and the conditions are bad and people who have no, no funds end up being stuck in these places and they're really, the, the places aren't maintained properly. You, know, you sort of know what I mean. Slumlords. It's not good. The biggest slumlord in Sydney was the Church of England because they had taken houses that had been left to them by widows. They had devoured the widows' houses and instead of using them for good, they turned them into a money-making racket. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses. And for a pretext... Make long prayers, therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. There's a connection between that poor widow woman and the scribes and the Pharisees, and it's not a good one. 
Then he says in verse 15, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye compass land and sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. How is it that they do that? How is it when they make a proselyte, when they get a convert, it's simple, you find it explained in the next verses. Because they teach them the wrong things. That's the problem here. Notice what he says. Verse 16. Woe unto ye blind guides which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple it is nothing, but whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple he is a debtor. And it goes through here. Ye fools and blind, which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold? And Whosoever will swear by the altar, it is nothing. But whosoever sweareth by the gift upon it, he is guilty. Ye fools and blind. For whether is greater the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift. What's he getting at here? He's getting at that when they get a convert, when they get a proselyte, instead of teaching them the important stuff, they teach them rubbish and unimportant things. Listen, when, when we have a person come into our church, when there's a person who's been saved, we need to teach them the important stuff. The really important stuff. When our children are growing up, we need to teach them the important stuff. Here, they were teaching them how to weasel out of an oath. So if, if, if someone came up to you and says, I swear by the temple I will pay you the money I owe. Well, that's not binding. But if they say, I swear by the gold on the temple that I will pay you the money I owe, that's binding. They teach them weasel words and nitpicking little details instead of the important truths that are in Scripture. They make mountains out of molehills and they major on miners and they make the convert twice as bad as them. We need to teach the important stuff, the vital stuff. Truth, justice, mercy, repentance, the important stuff. And to leave the minor stuff aside. Teaching people to major on minors and to work out tricky, tricky exemptions is not the way God wants to teach. I remember uh, uh, talking to a, a a Muslim gentleman, and we were talking. We, we mentioned the fact that uh, you know if if we had a dollar for every drunk Muslim we'd picked up, we'd be rich men. And yet their religion teaches that they are to abstain from fermented products. And he said, did you know that there are some Muslims that teach you cannot drink fermented grape, you cannot drink fermented grain, but of course vodka is made from fermented potatoes, so that's okay. This is the sort of weasel word nitpicking that we're talking about. If God says something, he means it. 
and we shouldn't go around looking for ways to get around it. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 23. For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and omitted the weightier matters of the law. They tithe. Wow, great, terrific. You notice how detailed their tithing was? They would go out into their herb garden and they would count the number of leaves on their mint bush and pull off 10% of them and tithe them to the temple. Yeah. That's how, that's how detailed these scribes and Pharisees were with tithing. And Jesus condemns them for it. Why? He says, that wasn't wrong, but the problem is you've done that instead of looking at the important matters of the Lord, judgment and mercy and faith. These are the things you need to do first. You know, if you, as a Christian, if you look to the matters of judgment and mercy and faith, and you look to your heart and, and say, where is, is God and I at the moment? Where am I with God and how am I living and doing according to his word? The matter of how much tithe you give will sort itself out. God will deal with that. He'll tell you all you need to know. If you concentrate on the first things first. And he gives us a brilliant example. Verse 24, he says, You blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Okay. What's this business about straining at a gnat? You know what gnats are? You know those little tiny things? They also get called vinegar flies. If you, if you want to, yeah, if you want to get picky, drop cilia melanogasca is what they're known as. They're little tiny things that go around rotten fruit. You see, little tiny ones. That's what he's talking about. That's what he means by a gnat. Not the biting gnat. He's talking about the little, little tiny vinegar flies. Now, if you leave wine uncovered, it's going to attract them. Especially fresh wine with still a bit of sugar in it. It's going to attract these little vinegar flies. And the Pharisees said, Oh, to touch a dead body would make me ceremonially unclean. So what some of them would do was when they poured the wine out, they would pour it through a cloth so they would strain out the gnats. Less, it wasn't a health measure, it was lest by touching a dead insect I would become unclean. That was what they were doing. And yet, he said, they swallowed camels. They wouldn't touch a gnat, but they'd swallow a camel. You see, a camel isn't kosher either. Swallowing a camel makes you unclean as well. But he's by this comparison. Remember I was talking about the way he compared things? They're worried about the tiny little gnat, but they don't care about the camel. Their, their whole attitude is these tiny little things have to be done 
But judgment and mercy and faith, they ignored. Majoring on minors. By comparison, our widow woman didn't care. She went and she gave without any pretext, without any thought of, of herself or what people thought of her. She came and she gave in faith. Verse 25. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but within are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first which, which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Now, if I come to you and you're thirsty, and I say, here is a cup of water, nice, cold, fresh water, good, and you have a choice. You can have it with the dirty cup outside and the clean inside, or the cup clean on the outside and dirty on the inside. Which would you rather drink out of? I'd rather drink out of one that had a dirty outside but the clean was on the inside. And this is what he's getting at here. The Pharisee looked at the cup and if the outside was clean that was all he cared about. Why? Because that's all you could see. Now I've mentioned this to some people. I had a Pharisee do some painting at my place. Now, it, I don't know whether he was exactly like one of these, but he had the same attitude. Because on the out, uh, at the back of my house, there is a pergola. And it was painted. Now, anybody who's a builder or a painter will tell you that the most important part of a building or anything to be painted is the top, because that's where the weather hits. Yet when I got up on a ladder, guess which was the only bit that hadn't been painted? The top. Why? Because no one could see it. Beware of Pharisee painters. They'll paint the bit you can see, but the bit that's important they miss. And this is exactly the attitude that Jesus is talking about here. They paint, the, they clean the bit you can see, but the bit that's important, they miss. Doing things to be seen as being correct instead of the things that are important. Our little widow didn't care. You know, you know what was supposed to go in that chest? If you read carefully, silver. A half shekel of silver was supposed to go in the chest. She didn't have it, so she gave what she had. She didn't care what the rules said. She said, this is all I have and this is what I will give. Little copper coins. Why? Because she was more, more worried and more concerned about doing what was right than doing what looked right. This idea of externals. In, in my occupation, I come across occasionally people who we charitably refer to as over-refreshed. 
And some of them we come across quite regularly. Over-refreshed. And there is something that you'll soon learn about a drunk. If you clean him up and put a nice suit on him, get him to shave, get him to shower, even give him a decent meal, doesn't do any good. Because next week, he'll be back there cuddling his bottle of booze and back in the same way he was. Why? Because you've cleaned up the outside, but you haven't changed the inside. And that is why every successful program that works with people like alcoholics starts by changing the inside first. Because once you've done that, the outside will take care of itself. Once a person is sober and clean and straight, well, guess what? They'll naturally want to get clean. They'll naturally clean the body up. They'll naturally want to look better. They'll naturally want to eat properly. Why? Because the inside has been changed first. In the same sense, and it's the same principle, and the principle's the same because, in case you didn't know it, groups like AA started in churches. And they understood the principle that you have to change the inside first. The scribes and the Pharisees were just interested in externals. Change the outside first. We say, no, change the heart first. It is the heart which must be changed. It is the heart which needs to repent. It is the heart which needs to turn to God. And then what they're doing and how they're living and, and what they wear and how long their hair is and what makeup they wear, and that'll take care of itself. Internals are far more important than externals because if the internals are correct, If the inside of the plate and the cup is clean, the outside will be fine. If the heart is changed, the body will follow. It's a very true principle that was learnt the hard way by people like Calvin is that you cannot legislate righteousness. Can't do it. Doesn't mean we shouldn't have good laws, we should. Doesn't mean we shouldn't have Christians in, in Parliament. We should. Doesn't mean we shouldn't have, have good principles. We should. But you can never legislate people's hearts. And the scribes and the Pharisees, so insisting on externals, had missed the point that this poor widow woman understood. She gave from the heart. And that is what our Lord looks for. Verse 27, Woe unto thee, sorry, verse 27, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outwards, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within are full of all hypocrisy and iniquity. Tombs in Palestine. You don't bury people in the ground in Palestine. Okay? Even now. 
The reason is really simple. You go down about that far and it's rock. Okay? It is just rock. So even in the, in the, uh, the cemeteries, you find that they're all above ground. In fact, there are so many rocks in Palestine that when you go to visit a grave, you don't put flowers on there, you put a rock on there. Okay? Rocks everywhere. It's rock country. So, you didn't want to trip over a grave. Because remember, that would, that would uh, also could well make you ceremonially unclean. So what they would do was they would whitewash them so you could see them in the dark. But it didn't change what was inside them. Inside was still full of corruption. And you remember the comment from... John chapter 11, verse 39, the resurrection of Lazarus, where they said to him, Lord, it's been four days. If we crack that tomb, he stinks. You could smell a graveyard. Great Graveyards in our society are, are sort of sanitised. Now, they're all under, underground and it looks pretty and it looks... Not, uh, a Palestinian graveyard, you could probably smell it downwind. It was full of corruption. And he says, you scribes and Pharisees, you're like a whitewashed tomb. Looks pretty, but inside it's full of rottenness and dead men's bones. They'd gone from being unclean now to being rotten. And the final thing condemnation of them in verse 29 woe unto you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous and say if we had been in the days of our fathers we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets can't you hear him say that Oh, if I'd been alive then, I wouldn't have done that. If I'd been alive then, I wouldn't have persecuted this prophet. He says, fill up the measure of your fathers. Your fathers started this. You're going to finish it. Verse 33, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Sound familiar? Sound, sound like something you've heard before? Is it any wonder that, that some people said when they heard Jesus preach, it's John the Baptist risen from the dead. This is the same message that John gave to these people. You pack of snakes. You generation of hell. How are you going to escape? Why? Because you deny the past. You deny your own history. You say, oh, we wouldn't have been like them. Yes, you would have. Behold, wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you'll kill and crucify, and some of them you shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, the son of Bacchus, whom ye slew between the altar and the temple. 
Why those two people? Why did he pick those two people to, to describe? Abel, I can understand, he was the first martyr. Killed by his brother because his deeds were righteous and his brothers were evil. Who's this guy, Zacharias, the son of Bacchus? Well, when you picked up a Hebrew Bible in the first century, the first book was Genesis. The last book was Second Chronicles. And the last martyr recorded in Second Chronicles was Zacharias, the son of Bacchus. From A to Z, from Abel to Zacharias, or as we would say in our term, from Genesis to Revelation. That's why they put. That's why those two guys are in there. And he said, "You're going to complete the work, you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you people who say you are the servants of the Most High God. You are going to complete the work of your fathers who started at Abel and persecuted every righteous prophet from that time on. You're now going to kill." the prince of prophets. You're now going to crucify the king of kings. You're now going to murder the lord of lords. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, fill up the measure of your fathers. Finish your father's work. And then he laments over Jerusalem, saying, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often I would have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, for I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus went out. You can lift that bit from the next verse. And Jesus went out. He left. He walked out of the temple. He said, I've, I've cleansed it. I've taught in it. I've debated in it. And you didn't listen. The only thing left now is judgment. And then, and then he will then proceed to describe the coming judgment. In the next chapter. Judgment, lament, and then departure. He came to the temple he to cleanse it, to teach in it, to argue in it, but finally to condemn it. For he came unto his own, and his own received him not. What will Jesus find in our churches when he comes back? When he returns to gather his people to him. When he comes, comes and calls us home to be with him. Who will he find in his churches? Unfortunately. In so many churches he will look and he will say. You scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites. But in some. In a few places. Will he find the faith of one poor widow woman? Those who are still desiring to serve him and to do what is right. When he looks down upon us, who is it that he sees? Is it those who are filling up the measure of our, of our fathers who 
were partakers of the blood of the prophets or is it those who are serving him with whatever they have, however they can? Where are we in this comparison? Have we allowed the things of the world to come in and to take us away from where we should be? Have we allowed the things of trying to look good instead of trying to be good to draw us away? Have we been concerned with externals instead of the heart's needs of ourselves and people? Have the little nitpicky rules replaced the principles of faith and judgment and mercy? I remember hearing of one church that said, oh, we'll never become legalistic because we've got rules to stop that. (laughs) Outwardly appearing righteous to men, but inwardly full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Yes, the, the, the denomination of the Pharisee is alive and well and living in modern Christendom. Let us be on guard. And remember that we do have the other example to, to show to us. We have the example of one poor woman with no help and no support who gave what she could to do what she could for the glory of her God. Where do we find ourselves? Where are we today? Have we allowed the world to change us? Or are we trying to change the world through what's inside us? Have we kept the principles? Or are we allowing the externals to run our lives? This day, let's look at our hearts and understand where we are and realise the immense danger there is to be drawn away into the world of the scribe and the Pharisee. Thank you.